Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Sarah, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Refactoring, the Ruby edition, and we're on chapter six, Composing Methods. This week, we're going to look at Replace Loop with Collection Closure Method, Extract Surrounding Method, and Introduce Class Annotation. Remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. So how did you find the reading this week? I felt like we had a sandwich this week. And what I mean by a sandwich, sandwich. <laughs> is that we had, you know, the pieces of bread were the two really mm-hmm. quite straightforward ones, the collection closure method and introduce class annotation. And then in the middle, we had something rather more mind bending, which was extract surround <laughs> method. And that's a very nice way to put it. <laughs> uh, thank you. And that, that included the return of our very, very lovely Brie blocks. And for anyone who doesn't know what those are, <laughs> those are the, the begin, rescue and end blocks or ensure blocks that we, we love so much. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, it took me... A, a, a while to to get what exactly what was going on in that section but it was but yeah it was I think it was worth it <laughs> mm-hmm. how about you yeah yeah I had similar feelings uh, I felt like the first method and the last method we learned were pretty straightforward to the point where I said this really has a name you know um mm. and then the thing in the middle I was I was very very confused by so I'm <laughs> I'm glad that you're here and you can help uh, unpack that for me as, as well as um hopefully some of the listeners so yeah so let's begin with replace loop with collection closure method so here so this is one of those things that I was I was surprised there was even a section on it because <laughs> I just thought this is you know I didn't think this was like when, when I think of refactoring in these recipes, I guess my assumption has always been that we are refactoring code that we thought was great, uh, but then causes problems later on, and now we need a recipe to fix it. And uh, I guess the examples that we have here were things that I, that never, that would not feel to me like they were passable. Does that, does that make sense? I'm trying to be nice. Does that, does that make sense? Is it because like, this one and also the one we're going to discuss at the end are more to do with things that you would do to tidy up the code as opposed to big problems? No, it's, well, okay, so let's let's get into the example and then I'll, I'll, um, I'll go back and, and see uh, and explain what I mean. So here we're talking about replacing loops with relevant collection closure methods. Uh, so the example that we have here is one where we have a variable managers and it's set to an empty array. And then we have employees.each do e. And then we have managers shovel e if e dot manager question mark. So the better way of doing this, the refactored way of doing this is managers equals employees.select and then e e dot manager question mark. So instead of um, initializing an empty array and then shoveling it in, we're using select to kind of do both at once and it makes it easier and cleaner. So I guess to me, the part that was a little confusing was I would never have done the initialize array and then shovel. Like to me, that's like, that's, that, that's something you would do if you didn't know what select or collect or map or any of those are. And I thought, if you know Ruby, that's like one of the coolest parts about it. So it never occurred to me that you wouldn't start with that. Well, that's funny you should say that because I... I'm someone who writes code like managers equals empty array, 
employees or each just to get really yes because it helps me because particularly if I'm doing something a bit more complex and I think they talk about a loop within a loop later on um Mm -hmm. it helps me I often for for example I'll write the pseudo code of what I want so I'll say okay I want a collection of managers and then I'm going to go through each of the employees and then I'm going to do this and then I translate that to code and then the next step will be to make that a select but I do go Mm -hmm. through that phase Mm -hmm. so this seemed like a very natural thing for me Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So one of the things that I was surprised by, or or I guess more surprised by, uh, was the idea of chaining. And I feel like this is the, maybe the second, maybe even the third time it's come up in this book, where in previous books, when we did 99 Bottles and we did Coffin at Ruby, we'd always address chaining as being something to avoid and not something, you know, that uh, kind of a code smell in of itself. And In this example, we're actually encouraged to do chaining and to think of it as a series of pipes and filters. So the example that we have here is doing something like employees.select, e, e e.manager question mark, dot collect, e, e e.office. So we're doing a select first and then on that result, we're doing a collect. Uh, And that's something that when I looked at that, I thought, oh, isn't that isn't that bad? Shouldn't we not do that? Um, And so it was interesting that we talk about using this method as a way of filtering, uh, basically filtering and and doing a series of pipes and filters when we have something complex. So one of the reasons why we're typically told to avoid chaining is because often as you chain methods, you're returning different types of objects and then you're calling methods Mm -hmm. on those objects. So it can get very confusing and you create awful dependency graphs and things like that. But the two or three times in this book where we have been encouraged to chain, I think the key thing that's consistent is that it's always on the same object type or set of things. So it's all within the same domain. Yes, it's returning the same object each time, the same type of object each time. Yes. Yes, and then you can, and so then chaining improves fluency. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, makes sense. And then one of the last examples that we talk about is one where we can use the inject method, which I confess is something that I always forget about until I see it and I go, oh yeah, I can Mm -hmm. use inject. Uh, And here it gives a really simple, straightforward explanation of when we should consider the inject method. And it says that when you're doing something in a loop that results in a single value, such as a sum, or when you're doing a calculation on something, uh, using inject is a great way to do that. It makes things a lot cleaner and a lot nicer. Fantastic. So now for the meat of the code sandwich, (laughs) the extract surrounding methods. I'm going to let you uh, take this one. Okay, no pressure. So (laughs) when do we want to use extract surrounding method? So this is when we have two methods and they contain nearly identical code, but the variance is in the middle of the method. And so what we're going to do is we're going to extract out the duplication and and we're going to put that into a method that accepts a block and yields back to the caller to execute the unique code. So let's look at an example. Mm-hmm. So we have a method called charge, and that takes two parameters, amount and credit card number. And then we have a lovely Brie block. So begin. Yes. We define a variable called connection, and that's equal to credit card server, which is a class, dot connect, and then that takes some parameters. And then we say connection.send, and that takes in two arguments, amount and credit card number. Then we have the rescue portion of our Brie block. So we rescue an input output error uh, to a variable called E. 
and we say logger.log could not submit order order number to the server and then we interpolate e the error message and then we return nil and then we have the ensure and that's connection.close so whatever happens we ensure that we close the connection so the refactoring is so we have two methods the first one is charge and again it takes the two arguments of amount and credit card number and the body of the method reads connect so i.e the method connect do connection and inside the block, it says connection.send with the arguments amount and credit card number. And then we can look at the connect method. And this is the meat of the, the, method, the charge method before. So it says begin connection equals credit card server.connect. And then it says yield connection. And then it's got the rest as before. So rescue the IO error and then the ensure the connection.close. So at the line that says yield connection, that will when the charge method is called, it will go back to that block that was passed into the connect method and call connection.send with the amount and credit card number. Does that make sense? Okay. So if I'm understanding this clearly, we call charge and then when we hit connect, we call the connect method. Mm -hmm. We do the begin, we do the connection, and then where it says yield connection, is when we go back to our charge method and we run the um, the block that says connection.send amount credit card number. Yes. And then we go back to the connect method and continue with the rescue, with the ensure. Uh, and then once we're done, we go back up to our charge method, which basically just ends. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And this gives us, so basically we've extracted out that logic of creating a connection and then mm -hmm. rescuing the error. And then it's the unique code within things like the charge method that we have the opportunity to call out to. Yes. And I think this is, for me, confusing because it feels like we're kind of going, we're kind of going back and forth a couple times, mm -hmm. right? We start with charge, then we go back to connect, then we go back up to charge for the unique block, then we go back down to connect to finish the surrounding method, and then we end on charge. I think what would have made this initial example more helpful is if they had showed some examples of calling code and also showed ways yes, how this agreed. extraction could be used in a couple of different ways. And I think that the example that we're going to come to later on helps to show this, the benefit of this better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. And I would love to see, you know, if the idea is to extract out the duplication, uh, it would have been it would have been helpful to see some other examples of charge methods, mm. right? That still leverage that idea or that connect method in different ways, but have unique blocks passed into it. So I think that would have been interesting. Yeah. So let's look at the mechanics of this. So the first step is to use extract method on one piece of duplication and name it after the duplicated behavior. So this becomes the surrounding method. And at the moment, it still performs the unique behavior. Then you check that all your tests are still working. Then you modify the calling method, so the old method that used to have the duplicated method. And this time you pass it a block to the surrounding method. And you copy the unique logic from the surrounding method into the block. Then in the surrounding method, where you used to have the unique logic, you now put the yield keyword. So you ensure that the block is called when you get to that point in the surrounding method. Then you identify any variables in the surrounding method that are needed by the unique logic, pass them as parameters in the call to yield. So in the other example, we needed to pass in connection. Mm -hmm. And then you test, 
and modify any other methods that can now use this new surrounding method. So to help make that clearer, we have another example. And this one in, is all about modeling family trees. So we've got a person class, and this can have a one-to-many relationship to itself. And these are children. So a mother can have many children. Mm-hmm. Let's look at some code. We've got a person class, and this has an attribute reader, mother, an attribute reader, children, and an attribute reader of name. Then we have an initialize method, and this initializes instance variables of name, mother, date of birth, date of death. It initializes an empty array for the instance variable called children. And there's also a line that says mother dot add child passing in self if mother. Mm-hmm. Then what the add child method does is it has one argument called child and it shovels in that child to the children instance variable array. Mm-hmm. So there's two methods that we're interested in in the person class. One is called number of living descendants. And what this does is it counts the number of living descendants. So it says children.inject with zero as the argument, do, and then count and child as the two arguments. Increment the count by one if child.alive question mark. And then return count plus child dot number of living descendants so that will recursively go down the family tree adding up all the living descendants and then there's a method called number of descendants named with name as the argument so this returns the number of descendants that match a particular name and it's got a very similar body to the previous method where you've got children dot inject zero do count child count plus equals one if child dot name equals equals name and then you return count plus child dot number of descendants named with name as the argument so again we've got recursive recursivity is that what we say <laughs> or recursiveness recursion recursion oh there you go oh come on Nadia. <laughs> oh that was awful oh, i'm so embarrassed <laughs> And then we have one final method, which is def alive question mark. And that says at date of death dot nil question mark. So in those two methods, we iterate over the collection of children recursively. And we can use extract surrounding method to get rid of this duplication because you would have seen that both of those methods are pretty similar. So the first thing that we're going to do is perform extract method on one of the two methods. So in the book, they look at number of descendants named first. So they replace the body of number of descendants named with a call to a method called count descendants matching, passing in the name argument. And then under the protected keyword, the the logic that came from number of descendants named is put into count descendants matching. So we've got the children.inject, with incrementing the count if child.name equals equals name and then returning the count and child.count descendants matching name. Now we're gonna make a calling method and pass a block to the surrounding method. So inside death number of descendants named, we edit that to accept a block. So we've got count descendants matching and then we have a squiggly bracket with the argument descendant and then we say descendant.name equals equals name. And then we change the signature of count descendants matching. Rather than taking name, we now pass in ampersand block. So it takes a block. And then where before we had count plus equals one if child.name equals equals name, 
we replace that to count plus equals one if you yield child. So what that will mean is, we, when we get to that line of the method, we increment the count if, so it's yield, so we'll go back to the block and we've passed in child as the argument, so if child.name equals equals name. And then we return count plus child.count descendants matching and then passing in the same block again as the argument. Is that clear so far? Okay. So. <laughs> okay, so this is the part where I got confused. Okay, so first of all, going back up to the surrounding method, we have def number of descendants named name, calling count descendants matching, passing a name, protected def count descendants matching. So in the def count descendants matching, mm -hmm. when we have count plus child dot count descendants matching, we're just going back to the like the method that we're already in yes it's just the same recursion that we had before it's just that we're now calling our new method called count descendants matching within itself yeah okay okay so then for the next part we've adjusted it so that instead of taking in for the def number of descendants named instead of taking in um instead of the count descendants matching taking in just the name we're passing in a whole block mm -hmm. So if we were to call number of descendants named, then we would call count descendants matching, and then there we would do children.inject, count plus equals one, so incrementing by one, if, and then the yield is the block that we passed in? Yeah, so yield calls a block, executes any block if a block was passed in, and it's passing in child as the argument to that block. So, okay, so child would basically be the descendant. Yes. Okay, so then we run that block and then we go to the next line, count plus child dot count descendants matching, taking in the block again. So basically we're just doing the same recursion. Mm -hmm. So essentially we've replaced the name part for a block. Like that's basically what we did. Yes, and then the reason we do that is because then we can have different conditions that we check recursively down the family tree. Got it. So in this example, what we're checking is if child name equal equals name, but that thing that we're checking might change. So we can pass in whatever thing that we're checking in order to do the count descendants matching. Yes, just like we do in the following example, where we modify number of living descendants. So now it just reads count descendants matching, and then it's a block with descendant as the argument. And the body of the block says descendant.alive question mark. Got it. Yes. Okay, going through it with you, it doesn't seem as ridiculous. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Thank you for that. That was really helpful. And it was helpful talking, having you question it the other way as well. Mm -hmm. Good, I helped. Awesome. So uh, one of the benefits that it talks about is the fact that we get to separate out the business logic from the infrastructure logic, which is kind of the thing that stood out to me in our um, previous example and our simpler example of the connection, which I think we've all seen uh, a lot working with Rails apps, is when we get to abstract the way the connection is made, we don't have to worry about it. And we can just focus on what we do with the connection instead of getting uh, having that be mixed up in uh, what we're doing and how it works. So in this way, we see the same example here just by looking at number of living descendants, count descendants matching, descendant.alive. That really helps us focus on what we're doing, which is 
count the number of living descendants if the descendants are alive without having to figure out, well, how are we actually doing the matching and where does that come from and who are the children? We don't have to think about Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So that makes it a lot cleaner. Indeed. So our last method of this episode is introduce class annotation. And this is was, again, one of those things where I thought, huh, interesting. Like it's, you know, we, we talk about it um, in a way that it's it, it's very common and I guess one very specific way that we use it, that it, it didn't really occur to me that I could use it in other ways and kind of make my own uh, make my own rules. So it was, it was really interesting. So here, uh, we talk about declaring the behavior by calling a class method from the class definition. So the example we have is class search criteria. We have def initialize taking in a hash, and then we have at author ID equals hash, and then, uh, the symbol author ID, and then next line at publisher ID equals hash and the symbol publisher ID. And then we have at ISBN equals hash taking in the symbol ISBN. So here we are assigning instance variables using a hash that we passed in as the argument. And so a different way we can do that is if we have class search criteria, we can have hash initializer, colon author ID, comma, colon publisher ID, comma, colon ISBN, which is a lot nicer and a lot uh, easier to read. Can I just say it took me... until further down in this section to realize that hash initializer was a custom method. I actually looked inside Dash and Googled, oh, I've never heard of hash initializer before. That's a cool little Ruby trick. Yeah, same. <laughs> I definitely thought, I was like, oh, cool. This is like a thing that I could just use whenever I want. Yeah, that's what I thought too. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so when I read this, I immediately thought of the adder accessor, adder reader, adder writer methods that we use all the time. And uh, the this section brings those up as examples of when we might do something like this as well. And so for the mechanics of this, we would decide on the signature of our class annotation, and then we declare it in the appropriate place. Then we would convert the original method into a class method, and then we would test it. And then we would consider using extract module on the class method to make the annotation uh, a little bit easier and and also to compartmentalize it a little bit more. And then we would test. So if we look at that example again, we have class search criteria, definitionalize taking in a hash. And we have our same at author ID equals hash, uh, symbol author ID, at publisher ID equals hash, symbol publisher ID, at ISBN equals hash, symbol ISBN. So in our class search criteria, we're going to create a class method, def self.hashinitializer, and that's going to take in attribute names, which is using the flat operator, so we can have as many attribute names as we want. And then we'll have define method, taking in the symbol initialize, do args uh, with our splat operator again. And then in there, we have data equals args.first or empty hash. And then we're going to go through all the attribute names. So we'll do attribute names.each do attribute name, instance variable set, and then we have a string at interpolated attribute name, comma, uh, and then the, the string is closed, and we have data accessing attribute name, end, end, end. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so doomy and gloomy. <laughs> it does. <laughs> And then now that we've set that up, we can use uh, our new method and we can do hash initializer, colon author ID, comma, colon publisher ID, comma, colon ISBN. 
So if we look at the, or if we just hear <laughs> the hash initializer I just described, uh, it's kind of gross looking. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, it's not super clean. It's not very um, nice. It's, it's pretty ugly. So one of the ways that we might fix this is to move it out of our search criteria class and to put it into a module called custom initializers. And the whole idea with even creating this hash initializer is that we're probably going to use this uh, in different places and we're probably going to um, access it a lot. And so we can move that into a module called custom initializers, put it there, uh, and then we can call class.send colon include comma custom initializers. And so once we've set that up, we can then uh, use it in our class search criteria without having to hold that really ugly, gross method and just have hash initializer, colon author ID, comma, colon publisher ID, comma, colon ISBN, which is a lot nicer and cleaner. Fantastic. Can I just say, I think you do a great job of handling big chunks of code and reading them out. Thanks. I'm always a little lightheaded after <laughs> I finish reading out about it. <laughs> you do a wonderful job. So as you heard, uh, it took us a while to wrap our heads around extract surrounding method. So we were wondering, did it take you a while too, or was it pretty straightforward for you? Tweet us your responses at Ruby Book Club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio! Cheerio!